Welcome to the Compliance Expert Radio Show, your source for the latest information on corporate governance, internal audit, SOCs, and risk management services. With in-depth interviews, discussions, and insights from leading experts. Hosted by Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. This is the Compliance Expert Radio Show. And now, here is your host, Sonia Luna. Hello, welcome. I am Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a speaker and writer on topics like COSO 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment review, reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview, which I'm really excited about, is with Joe Koenig. Joe retired from Michigan State Police after 26 years and has 45 years of investigative experience in both the public and private sectors. He was the lead investigator on the James R. Hoffa case, which is amazing, and investigated homicides, organized crime, financial crimes, narcotics, and public corruption. He is the past president of the Michigan FBI National Academy Associates. He is a certified fraud examiner, holds a BS in accounting from Wayne State University, and a master's in public administration from Eastern Michigan University, where he was a member of the Phi Kappa Phi Honor Society. He now owns a financial fraud investigations firm called KMI Investigations, located in Western Michigan. He is the author of a brand new book, which I'm really excited to get to know more about. It's called Getting the Truth, and it's available on Amazon. Please check it out, Amazon.com. Welcome, Joe. Well, thank you for uh, welcoming, Sonia. Well, I just wanted to kind of get started about this book. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and, and the inspiration you had for writing it? Well, the book is entitled Getting the Truth, and uh, those words are important. It's not entitled Finding the Truth or Discovering the Truth, because uh, those words are too passive. You need to be aggressive to get the truth. You need to go after it. The truth doesn't just surface. It actually hides. It hides when the interviewer allows the answers that contain misunderstood or undefined words. For example, what does worth mean to you if you ask an expert, what is the company worth? That expert will use that undefined word to his or her client's advantage. So the interviewer needs to define words in the question and to make sure the responder defines words in the responses to make sure there's clean and precise communication. The truth hides in poor communication. This book teaches the reader how to sense the tracks of truth and deception. When the book's principles are followed and applied, deception and truth are identified. Uh, The seed for my book was actually planted back in 1950. Most of your listening audience wasn't even around then. But I was age four. I grew up in a small Midwest community. My neighbors up the hill from my house, the Teneers, just installed a cement driveway, 
And in those days, a cement driveway was two strips of concrete. The still curing concrete had sharp, jagged edges exposed by the ditches dug for the freshly removed wooden frames. Now the Duttons on the other side uh, had a detached garage that stood alone at the base of a hill. In those days, most garages were detached. I loved going into that garage, exploring and playing with his tools. It was a quiet, dark place like a treehouse. He was sitting there all alone and always full of new tools and projects. I knew I wasn't supposed to go in there, and I, and I was told not to go in there many times. Mr. Dutton went to my mom on several occasions and told her to keep that kid out of his garage. Uh, one day I was playing on Mr. Tanier's driveway, slipped and scratched the top of my left knee, drew a little blood, uh, but no big deal. So I was, became bored and obviously headed to Mr. Dutton's garage. I always liked opening his door to see what was new, and I turned on the light and stood there to look around to see what was new. Uh, this particular day, uh, he had, uh, when I turned on the light, there was a big axe on his tool table, and on the garage floor was a tree stump. I picked up the axe, and I can remember as if it happened uh, yesterday. The axe was heavy, and I could barely hold it. But I was hell-bent to swing it at that tree stump. I swung it at the tree stump. Of course, I missed it, and the axe embedded just below my knee, my left knee, uh, leaving a big gaping vertical wound, blood all over. I ran home uh, into my mom's house. She gasped then asked, Joey, what happened? I responded with an almost imperceptible pause. I fell on Mr. Tanier's driveway. Well, we learn at the ages uh, between two and three how to tell partial truths. Now, I intentionally call lies partial truths because we learn to tell partial truths, not complete lies. We rationalize that a partial truth is not a real lie when there's some truth in it, and we excuse ourselves. It's okay. There's some truth in my statement. When I said I fell on Mr. Tanier's driveway, I did fall on Mr. Tanier's driveway. But I know uh, that my mom was looking at that big gaping wound below my left knee, which wasn't caused by Mr. Tanier's driveway, but was caused by the axe. But if I admitted to her that it was an axe from Mr. Dutton's driveway, I would have suffered further punishment. So by telling a partial truth, it becomes kind of like a win-win. So we tell partial truths to further our agendas. We learn this at an early age, and we hone it every year of our lives, and we partial become good at it. Yeah, well, I and have a, I have a three and a half year old, and those partial truths are just <laughs> popping up all over the place, more, more well, than what go. I would have expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an amazing process, but it's those partial truths that leave tracks, and that's what this book is all about. How to how to discover those tracks and how to mine them and how to uh, then uh, get the truth from uh, what they told you. I, I love that that uh, concept you're sharing, you know, about partial truths and you got to mine them. And I know our listeners would like to hear, you know, how writing this book helped you become 
and maybe give some advice on how to be a better certified fraud examiner, knowing that especially the principles that you were mentioning in the book. Can, can you share that with our listeners? I'd love to. You know, I hope your audience listened to a recent interview you had with David Rolander, the author of CEO Code, uh, because many of his ideas are based on reading people patterns. And that's really what good interviewing is all about, reading uh, people's communication patterns. Uh, People don't tell complete lies. I said that before. They tell partial truths. And uh, uh, you find the the truth by following tracks that are left behind. Now, what are tracks, for example? In my example, of course, some of the tracks are, you know, the blood from the garage to the to the back door, uh, but it was on grass, so my mom couldn't necessarily track that. But one very uh, good track and is often found is was the almost imperceptible pause before I answered a question. I shouldn't have had any trouble answering that question, but I paused, and she should have keyed on that. But uh, you've got a lot of interception or interference going on when some of these things happen. I mean, I'm bleeding all over the floor, for example. Uh, She's distracted. I'm crying. The urgency of the wound itself. So there's no doubt my mom missed that track. But had she been tuned in, she would have seen it and known that, Uh, Joey wasn't telling the whole truth. Um, So tracks are um, found uh, during the interview. For example, when you first interview, when you start out an interview with somebody, let's say you're auditing the head of some department, the small talk in the very beginning of the interview is extremely important because it's then that you watch the speaker's communication patterns the eye blinking, the uh, the speech tone, the inflections in their voice, the rhythm of their speech, uh, whether or not they uh, curl their lips uh, when saying certain things, uh, how quickly their eyes blink, when their eyes don't blink, what's their eye contact, how's their breathing. You monitor all of that, and that's one of the things you learn in my book is how to become good at that. You monitor all that, and then you calibrate uh, with these easy questions to the person you're interviewing so that you have some foundation for later when you ask some critical questions, you can then compare those um, responses, those communication patterns to the response and communication pattern when they answer critical questions. So, for example, if, they're, if they don't look you in the eye during an interview, but uh, during those initial questions, but later they do, that doesn't necessarily mean there's deception. That just means you've got to be on top of things and make sure that you noted that difference in behavior and then um, ask more questions to drill down on that response to find out what the real truth is. Or what the reason was behind that change in behavior. So the key thing is to calibrate to the individual. And then remember that there will be distractions, both intentional and unintentional. Um, you know, that you'll have people who will, who will know, for example, that you have 
a time limit on how much time you could spend during the audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may know your schedule better than you do, and they will intentionally distract you. They may give you voluminous, superfluous, or um, other do other things to distract you from your mission, causing you to uh, have a shorter window to get the job done, and therefore you may not find what they don't want you to find. So you got to be keyed into all of those things, and you got to be ready to change your schedule if need be. Uh, I remember when I was a field inspector for the state police, I used to go out like an auditor and uh, check all the posts for compliance, effectiveness, and efficiency. And uh, one post, uh, I didn't discover it right away, but later, (laughs) an hour or so into the morning, I noticed that the waitresses at the restaurant, the post commander had invited me out for coffee, and the waitresses at the restaurant were intentionally serving slowly uh, to keep me out of the post. So you got to be tuned into that sort of thing uh, because everyone you talk to has a strategy to uh, to keep you from doing your job the way you want to do it. So, wow, that's an, so, an incredible story. Yeah, you got to keep all that in mind. Yeah, I, I, and I think for, for auditors in particular who are dealing with compliance, um, that small talk that you mentioned about trying to find these, um, clue, you know, cluing in on their patterns or their behaviors, I know we as a firm, the first thing we start off with more more of a, of a gratitude um, uh, scenario. For example, you sit with the AP clerk, and it's a senior associate that needs to get uh, to identify samples or what have you for vendor payments. We're trying to first not just get into the work, but just say, you know, Susie Smith, AP clerk, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy these days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just want to, you know, before we get into X, you know, can you can you tell me, has there been um, – uh, any changes in your role or response? It's something lighter than the actual audit of what we need. Mm-hmm. You follow, so that way, she, th- Susie Smith knows what we're about to audit typically, but without having to get into that right away as step one. Step one is more of thank you for you know sparing your time. I, I know you've been very busy, blah blah blah, et cetera, and 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 you know we've got some time together. But before we get into this, let's talk about you know. How's how's this new financial accounting system working for you that that you guys implemented last year? You follow what I'm getting? Something unrelated to what we're really trying to find out in terms of the population of vendor payments. And you're right. It it it's um when I first started in auditing back at Arthur Anderson, I can tell you I'm a I'm a completely different interview today <laughs> as a staff. You know, and it it's it's hard to really. Um, you know, unless you're in the profession for quite some time, do you really start understanding the the key differences? But they're there, they're subtle, they're there, and you 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 just will pick up on those patterns, like you mentioned. You know, eye contact and breathing and um, pauses, et cetera. They're they're there, and they're telling you that. Um, you know, it's almost like auditors should hire like poker players, professional poker players, because. Yeah, they would be great at, at identifying signs because that's the main game for them. Is is and they got yeah, yeah you can't game. pick those things up by reading a text, or even by reading my book. But you've got to you've got to learn those principles and practice them. 
day in and day out, and pretty pretty soon you'll get better at reading those patterns. And you'll use those patterns to base your opinions on later when you're asking those critical questions. And I like I like the the way you you put that uh, because reading your book is going to allow someone to take those principles because I I know you've got some examples in there you know, about what that looks like. And more importantly, people are going to start basing things off of those principles from your book, right? And you can document that. You you follow, like, I I did some small talk. Well, what happened there? What did I notice? And then you do it again with another, especially in in the field of uh, examinations or compliance professionals. You have dozens of interactions sometimes in a week when you're working at a client, Right, so oh, yeah. you can start picking that up, and if you use that your book as a base, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, there's a fact pattern here because I'm documenting these examples, and there is something about this, and you start becoming better and better and better at it. Which I wanted to find out a little bit more um, about, you know, your discussion about contamination in your book, and I know you elaborate more. Um, on it, but I, I I wanted you to give our listeners, you know, what do what do you mean by that, and what, what can pro- compliance professionals, let's say internal auditors, you know, what can we do better to 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 be when we are interviewing an, an auditee? Um, but I first wanted to get into the contamination piece of it and uh, the definition, and then and then some best practices to kind of move us to be better compliance professionals. Sure, Sonia. Well, I define contamination as anything that affects the future. Um, And I also say that interviews, even your audit interviews, should be treated like a crime scene. Uh, Crime scenes, you don't want to contaminate the evidence at a crime scene, and you don't want to contaminate the interview you're about to conduct. So you do everything you can to minimize contamination. Now, contamination can take uh, you know, anything you do contaminates. And you can't eliminate contamination. You simply have to minimize it and uh, keep it uh, as minimized as you possibly can. So the way you conduct yourself, the way you dress, the way you talk, uh, your political uh, discussions, the way you introduce yourself, all of those can be sources of contamination. And uh, contamination can be positive or negative. Uh, Positive contamination is that contamination which assists you to get your job done. And negative contamination is that which works against you and prevents you from getting the truth. So you need to structure your questions, especially your very first critical question has to be structured extremely well. You've got to think about it and make sure... You structure it properly and use words that are mutually understood. That's one of the guides throughout my book, that you have to create almost perfect communication to get to the truth. So you've got to use words that are mutually understood, and then you've got to make sure that the responses are in words that are mutually understood by both of you. And then you have to further make sure that you aren't using what I call wiggle words. A wiggle word is something that can be defined several ways. Uh, And even simple words like here can be misinterpreted and uh, 
capitalized on by the deceptive person to make it their own definition to meet their own needs. But let's say you ask the question, your very first question, you've thought about it, and uh, you want to ask them, tell me about your account receivables. Now, that's a better structured question than what can you tell me about your account receivables? The tell me about your account receivables is more compelling and the, versus the what can you tell me about your account receivables is less compelling and also uh, it gives them an out because you're asking them, what can you tell me? Well, I can tell you... Uh, almost all of what I know, but I can't tell you all of what I know because all of what I know will get me in trouble. In other words, right. they can interpret yeah. your questions very literally. So, you you know, where you start determines where you finish. That first question is absolutely critical. And then you got to remember you, you, you train the, uh, the auditee or the interviewee in their responses. If you allow them, uh, one of the things I do in my book is an analysis, a, a very thorough analysis of uh, the interview of O.J. Simpson by detect LAPD detectives Lang and Van Adder uh, the day after the murder of Nicole Simpson and, and Ronald Goldman. And in that uh, discussion, they allow O.J. to answer with wiggle words and then they don't force him to define them. And because they, they, they're they basically training or allowing the interviewee to, to answer uh, in, in ways that aren't precise, specific, and accurate, and by allowing that to happen, then that fosters more of those answers later on in the interview. So be careful after you ask that first critical question, to set the stage and make sure that uh, the auditee gives you the answers you're looking for. You're looking for clear, precise, concise, and accurate answers, if in simple answers. If they give you something that's rambling or uh, uses a lot of wiggle or vague words, then you know you've, you've hit on something that's a little sensitive and you've really got to drill down on that and find out what what's behind it. But you can't allow them to continue to answer that way because that you will end up missing the truth if you allow that to happen. So uh, a lot of interviewing is starts with that very first critical question. You have to think about it and put and structure that question very, very well to get the interview started the way you want it. And then you've got to Further train the oddity to make sure they answer the questions the way you want them to answer them. Okay? Right. It, so, it, so it's the the real um, planning process of getting at uh, getting the truth from the oddity. And I know that there's been plenty of studies. I think AICPA did one. Um, the Internal Audit Research Foundation did another that. When auditors spend a sufficient amount of planning time, they get better results. Uh, in other words, when you rush into something, uh, let's say it's a, it, usually it's a scheduling rush. For example, client A says they've got a transaction or they've got, I don't know, some fire they got to put out. Postpone your audit income on X week. Okay, well, the auditor may have 
other clients, which most of them do, and now they're trying to do double or triple you follow work within mm-hmm. that time frame. And the planning right before field work sometimes either goes by the wayside or it's not as important because it's a scheduling issue now. Now that they're kind of under the gun to kind of get things done as quickly as, as possible, keep the client happy, obviously, because they want to uh, end on time. Um, but, you're, you know, study after study says you've got to really slow down to execute a fully a, a, a more robust value-add audit and don't skimp on the planning. The more you skimp, just, you know, planning for field work, planning for the materiality, planning for, you know, the high-risk areas, planning for that interview – Hour for hour, you end up extracting more value out of your audit by exactly. doing a, a timeout versus rushing through the job, and you actually do a lousier job with not sufficient results that you would expect to get out of an audit. Yeah, I've got an old saying that I follow. There's the short way, long way from point A to point B, and there's the long way, short way. The best is the long way, short way. Because you'll for sure you're going to get there. You're going to get from A to B. If you go the short way, long way, which is you know you rush into an interview and uh, you didn't plan it and structure it properly, you may never get to B. So you've got to you've got to have that planning at the front end. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wanted to get into more about your book about describing. You know, in your book, you say um, you, you got to be reading between the lines and distinguishing, you know, truth from perception. We talked a little bit about it, but can you give us a a glimpse of how you have encountered, you know, deception in your work and the motivations you have uncovered? Yes. You know, one of the things I cover in my book is how to become a trained observer, and I define a trained observer as one who senses all that is there and isn't, but should be. So you're not only looking at what's there, but you're, and looking is a poor word because I like to use the word sense, which incorporates all of your senses. Um, uh, One interview in particular, I remember I had a teller who was suspected of embezzling money. And uh, as I led her into the interview room, she let out a, a sigh, uh, exhaling air. And I knew before I even asked a question, before I even addressed her with the, with the beginning of the interview, that not only had she done it, but I was going to get a confession. So you got to use all those, all, all your senses to, to sense what's going on around you and what isn't but should be. So you're looking for things, and you're looking for things that aren't there to become a trained observer, and that's what I think an auditor should become. Let's look at, uh, for example, uh, there's uh, Rob Ford, Toronto's mayor, back in 2013 made a statement, I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Well, he never makes a a statement in there about the past. So the past is missing, so uh, we can probably assume that he did, in fact, use crack, crack cocaine in the past, um, and he's, because he's speaking simply about the present. I mean, that goes on in a press release from Presidential Press Secretary Jay Carney uh, when German Chancellor Merkel 
charge that the U.S. government was monitoring your cell phone. Here was his response, official response. Obama and Merkel spoke by phone earlier Wednesday, and the president assured the chancellor that the United States is not monitoring and will not monitor the communications of the chancellor. Well, again, they don't talk about past activity. Now, you know, when you're looking at statements that are extremely well crafted by uh, probably 50 people, they didn't leave out the past by mistake. It's an admission. <laughs> it's an admission that they did monitor. Right. That, that's a great so, example. Yeah. So you got a, a lot of these. Um, I, I think we're running out of time. I've got another one that I'll shoot you for uh, maybe the video later. But it's a it's a young man who reported his car is stolen, and it's an analysis of his statement uh, by looking at pronouns. Pronoun analysis will yield you. Uh, 80% of deceptive statements just on analysis of pronouns alone. And, People, and what have you what have you seen as the motivations, you know, when when you do these investigations, what's what's at the heart of it? Cuz I think a lot of us have seen Dr. Uh, Crispy's work on the, you know, fraud triangle, et cetera. but I mean, what what's your conclusion that you've seen in, in key motivations for people to do this to hide the truth? Well, I think a lot of it is a rationalization. Um, they've learned, you know, a lot of people think Bill Clinton, for example, the former president, is a very good liar, but he's not. He's he's typical uh, truth teller. He tells partial truths, and he leaves a lot of tracks in all of his statements, and I go through a lot of those examples throughout the book. But people rationalize. They think they've been passed over for promotion. Uh, they may have been offended by something a supervisor said or did, <clears throat> a coworker who they believed was was less qualified was given a commendation and they weren't. It, it all depends, but none of it happens unless there's opportunity. So in that fraud triangle, you've got to eliminate as much as you can the opportunity. So you've got to have the checks and balances that the auditor should be checking to make sure that uh, – those checks and balances are enforced and fairly and consistently enforced. So in this day and age where, especially when we went through the economic crisis, companies were cutting back people uh, left or right, and they had more and more people within their organizations wearing more and more hats. So they were, they were creating more and more opportunities for employees to go bad, and uh, that's what the auditors have to have to really look at is that opportunity end of that triangle to eliminate that. And the best way to eliminate that is through uh, real strong, consistent, and fairly applied uh, checks and balances. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I know regulators want to see more and more, actually. That's been a constant trend, especially in our industry. And I wanted to get into about your firm, actually. So, so what types of cases... Um, do you investigate now that that you've got your own company over at uh, KMI Investigations? What what are what are you currently working on? Well, I do a lot of fraud investigations, embezzlements. Um, I worked with a firm to uh, on a on a bank that had five million dollars missing. They had no idea if it was fraud related or not, and I worked the fraud end. Uh, whereas the uh, transaction specialists tried to see if they could find out where it was on the accounting end. 
so I work a lot of embezzlements. Uh, this kind of training can, you know, let's, let's take collusion, for example, one of the biggest nightmares for auditors when they're looking into fraud. Uh, if you have collusion between two employees, it's it's difficult to detect, more difficult to detect. But what if you uh, someone suspects there is collusion uh, and you want to prove there isn't any collusion? How do you do that? Well, using the principles in my book, you can do that because you can look at, uh, through the interview process, you can look at the statements of the parties involved and you can determine whether or not there was collusion based on their statements, how they use their pronouns, how they use their verbs, how they structure their voice patterns in their sentences, and so on. So it's an extremely valuable tool uh, that you can't, and I did that on a case once where there was suspected collusion between the company CFO and and another worker, and all the evidence would have pointed to collusion, uh, but I was able to determine that there was no collusion, um, that the CPA was not colluding with the other subject, and that the owner uh, could relax and uh, continue the employment of that CFO, and he did, and he has. She's still there for uh, seven, eight years after I did that analysis. So... There are a lot of things that you can determine through this kind of expertise, uh, and it's all in that book, really. Uh, I do things on suspicious emails, for example. If you've got a, uh, an executive receives an anonymous email and uh, they suspect, well, it, it could be somebody from within the company. I can look at those emails, for example, uh, of uh, sample emails from other um, suspected employees and help determine whether or not one of those employees was the author of that. I can determine whether or not, uh, or anyone who reads my book can determine whether or not that person is male or female probably. So there's a lot of things in there that can add to the toolbox for the auditor to uh, take advantage of. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of the book. It's a passion of mine. I love it. Uh, and, uh, it's something I wish I had back during the the Hoffa case, quite frankly. No, I think it's a great uh, tool, and I I be- really believe that. Just you know, this interview is going to be very insightful for a lot of people, but the book itself is also something that. Um, there's a, a few books that I read on an annual basis, right? Because I want to get back to the basics and remind myself, you know, about oh yeah, I got to remember that, and it's kind of like going to the it's like the gym, right? Your body and your mind needs to have some repeatable positive pattern. And and this book is kind of like, it's one of those interview things where you're like, oh, yeah, I, sh- I should be paying more attention to breathing or I should be paying more attention to eye contact. You follow because we get so caught up on uh, just life, right? Your mobile devices, your emails, you yeah. know, you, what you have going on. And reading a book like this gets you back to the basics of getting the truth, and and that it gives you a whole it gives you a whole different perspective that you got to look at things uh, instead of just being there. You're part of where you are. Uh, you're like a sponge. You're like uh, Mother Nature, basically, where you're absorbing everything and uh, not just absorbing that which you want to absorb. 
So it teaches you to get rid of those biases, prejudices, preconceptions that you take into the interview. You've got to get rid of those in order to really hear the real message. Yeah, I, I, were, I was doing an on-site interview. Um, I volunteer for an organization in D.C., and um, I needed to, to look at a contract, a signed contract, that to, to as evidence that this person had the legitimate power and authority to execute on behalf of the company. And, you know, we, we're there, and we're sitting in there, and I sent an email, and I said, I just, I just want to let you know I'm going to need to um, look at documents while I'm there. And then we got an email response back um, that, no, you know, this is all confidential, blah, 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 blah. So I remind him about the site visit, and I said, well, you know, have your NDNA ready for me to sign, or you can shoot it to me today before I go there tomorrow, take a look at it. So we're going through the interview, and, and he's answering certain things, and then I said, okay, well, let's let's take a look at some of these contracts that you're, you're alluding to and stuff. He's like, well, you know, a lot of my business is a lot of handshaking, you know, like the good old boys, and et cetera, et cetera. Said, so there you go. I <laughs> said, I yeah. So again, which contract am I looking at? Um, because without it, I can't conclude on this authority. You know that that handshake doesn't give me evidence, uh, sufficient evidence for me to make that conclusion. So, you know, give me three yeah. contracts. I need that now. Um, you know, I eventually got what I wanted, but it was just kind of let's just cut through the baloney at this point. Um, you know, and I was volunteering for another organization and it really wasn't that big of a deal, but it just was um peculiar peculiar to me. Why why you know, why can't you provide evidence that you actually run this company? That <laughs> it should be very, very easy. And well, that's you're where looking I got... for you know, you're looking for the simple, precise response. Anything else is suspicious. Right. Now that may not mean they're being deceptive but there's something that's driving that response rather than a you know a a clear simple response exactly uh i mean i i ended up getting what i wanted um but but <laughs> it's just you know sticking to the 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 facts like look this this is just something that has to be done and and i wanted to to thank you um joe for spending so much time i i know that this has been an insightful interview and I'm confident our listeners just got a, a lot of value hearing about, you know, the way the way you've described how deception happens and ways to uncover it. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can purchase Joe's new book, Getting the Truth, on Amazon.com. Thank you again, Joe, for sharing your wonderful insight and getting to the truth for our listeners, Joe. Thanks. Thank you, Sonia, and thanks for your service. Thank you. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off.